Our passage today is Luke 24, verses 13 through 49. This is on page 831, if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat in front of you. Page 831, Luke 24, verses 13 through 49. We've been preaching through Luke for quite a while. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday in this series, and I'm going to miss Luke. He's been a pal these last few years. I hope you have grown and your love for God's Word because of this book and in your understanding of God Himself and of what the Gospel is, who Jesus is, what He has done, all of this. Hopefully your heart has grown, your faith has grown. Spiritual growth is the kind of growth we should be concerned about far more than any other kind of growth, financial growth or uh, numerical growth in a church. Spiritual growth is what we're concerned about. Spiritual growth happens when the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to our hearts. So that's why we spend as much time as we do in the Word, singing songs about the Word, praying the Word, and so on. And today we're in verses 13 through 49. I'll begin by reading now verses 13 through 27. Please follow along as I read aloud. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some woman of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had ever seen that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said but him they did not see and he said to them oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Have you ever lost all hope? You ever hit rock bottom? A few years ago, I read about a woman in the Philadelphia area named Joan who met a loving man in her community. She was a Christian, he was a Christian, they got married, he was very well off, he had his own business and was making money hand over fist, they had three beautiful children together, she was living the American dream, she was living the dream period, this is what everybody wants, to have no concerns in life because when something bad happens you just throw money at it and the problem disappears, that sounds lovely, to have a loving family, a loving husband, three beautiful children, That sounds great. But not too long after her third child was born, she started to notice some distance between her and her husband, Henry. Didn't really enjoy spending time together. He was always kind of on edge and kind of irritable and irritated. And she 
kind of started to give them more space, and they kind of grew more and more apart, more distance between them. They didn't really want to be with each other. Eventually, she got to the point where she felt like she just needed some time alone to kind of think through her marriage, think through family life, what was really important for them, uh, what she could be doing to help. So she got a couple of her best friends, and they decided to go away for a weekend to a beautiful lake home, and they went and had a great time together. When she pulled back in the driveway that Sunday night before starting a new week with the family the next day, she noticed that all the lights were off in the house. Well, that's kind of strange. wonder where everybody's at right now. It's dark out. Went up to the house, and she just had that feeling as she walked up the front porch. Something's really bad. Something's really wrong. So she unlocked the door and opened it, turned on the lights, and everything in the house was gone. She fell over and screamed, and the scream echoed through the empty house. Her husband had expertly planned his exit, had taken everything in the house except a few of her own possessions and one small bed. She crumpled onto that bed and wept and wept and wept. She woke up the next morning and called the person who wrote this book that I read about this in and said, I have lost all hope. Have you been there? Can you imagine what it would be like to feel that sense of desperation and hopelessness? I think that's what the people in this story in Luke 24 were experiencing on this Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, as the sun is fading in Jerusalem, on the road out of Jerusalem, perhaps as they were going home with their hearts broken, thinking that all was well, and then thinking that all had gone terribly wrong. In times of trouble, we are overwhelmed by hopelessness. Light becomes darkness. Life feels like death. But in our passage today, Jesus tenderly ministered to his confused and doubting disciples. Did you pick up on that as we read this introduction to our passage today? Jesus tenderly ministered to his confused and doubting disciples. And Luke wrote this passage and the the portion that we'll study after it as well to encourage us as Christians to believe with certainty everything that he says and does. Believe all that Jesus has said. Believe all that he does. Because he tenderly ministered to these confused and doubting disciples. Sometimes we're confused. I think we can honestly confess that together. Sometimes, as Clayton prayed, and I appreciated that theme of his pastoral prayer, the confusion that we experience in life. Sometimes we are overwhelmed. Sometimes we are doubting. And we need Christ to cut through the darkness and expose us to the truth and then stabilize us in the truth. And that's what this passage does for us. So believe with certainty all that he says and does. How did Jesus minister to these weak, doubting, confused disciples? I think we see four different ways that Jesus ministered to them here in this passage. And the first is in verses 13 through 27, which we just read. How does he minister to them? He showed them that what happened was the fulfillment of Scripture. In other words, this was supposed to happen this way. This had to happen this way. Jesus showed that what happened was the fulfillment of Scripture. This was all according to plan. In verse 13, Luke explains that two of them, and what you have to do is tie that back to verse 9, where you read about the eleven and all the rest. These disciples. We don't know how many people were gathered together there, but you at least had the eleven, the twelve minus Judas, plus all these other disciples who were crying their eyes out, who were just trying to 
eat something to keep their blood sugar levels stable because they were so discouraged. They were so in the dumps. You have two of them walking away now, going to a village named Emmaus. Maybe this is home. Maybe it's a stop on the way home. It's about a seven-mile distance, so a couple hours' walk at least. And as they're going, they were talking with each other about all these things. What things? Over the last few chapters, Luke has been using these vague references over and over again. What are the things they're talking about? All of Jesus' works. Surely they proved that He was the Messiah. And then He was handed over. And then He was crucified. And now we can't even find His body for crying out loud. What is going on? These are the things that they're talking about in verse 14. But while they're talking and discussing these things, Jesus Himself drew near. Christian, did you know that Jesus will draw near to you and He will meet you in your heartache and your confusion? They're mourning over His death because they didn't have a category in their minds for a suffering Messiah. A Messiah who would die? What sense does that make? This can't be. So they've given up hope, as we would have done if we were on that road that day. But Jesus Himself drew near them and went with them. But notice in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. This idea about their eyes being kept is what theologians call a divine passive. All that means is it's a passive verb that refers to an action of God. God was the one who kept their eyes from seeing who this was. You would think it would be obvious. Like, look at the feet. Look at the hands. Look at the scars on his head from the crown of thorns. But it wasn't so obvious. And we don't understand all that was going on here. But it does appear that this was an act of God, that their eyes were kept from understanding what had happened. And perhaps the Lord did that so that he could reveal to them at just the right moment, while they're at rock bottom, what was truly going on. But you notice in verse 17 that hopelessness and despondency has set in. They stood still, looking sad in their reaction to Jesus' question. What are these things you're talking about? They just stood there. Maybe they had tears in their eyes. Maybe they had tears stained on their faces because of all they had been crying about the last few days. And the question in verse 18 is ironic. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And what we know as the readers, we know a lot more than the people who were living in the story knew, What we know is that he knew a lot more than they did about what was going on. He knew the truth. He knew the whole story. All the background. All that had led up to this. But they were not aware of that. And again, Jesus asks a vague question in verse 19. So what things am I supposed to be in the know about that you guys are in the know about? Well, about this Jesus who was. Notice this past tense. In their minds, he's still dead. That's... The only thing they can expect is that he's still dead. Verse 19, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. What he did was amazing. What he said was amazing. And the fact that he's Jesus of Nazareth takes you all the way back to chapter 4 where he's preaching in his hometown and the people are sitting there scratching their heads going, I thought that was Joseph's kid. He looks just like Joseph's kid. How is he saying these amazing words? And they all sat there with their mouths hanging open. And they sat totally still. And if a bird flew through the, the synagogue that day, nobody noticed it because their eyes were fixed on him. 
He's Jesus of Nazareth. This goes back years before this probably. But they knew who he was. He was a prophet. Reminding us that they expected him, for good reason, to be the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. A prophet like Moses who would minister to the people of God. Who would tell the truth to the people of God. And he had shown in his power and in what he said and what he did that he was a prophet from God. And we thought he was the prophet. But surely we were wrong because then he was delivered up in verse 20. The chief priests and rulers specifically were the ones here who delivered him up to be condemned to death. And we discussed briefly last week that Judas delivered Jesus up and Pilate delivered him up. But only after these chief priests and rulers delivered him up and we know from Acts 2.23 that all of this was under the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So in a sense, God delivered him up. But all these men knew was that he had been delivered up to be condemned to death. He was crucified. Maybe they had even seen it with their own eyes. Very possible. In a place like Jerusalem, where all the people were packed together, they would have caught word of what was going on. And they thought he was the one who was going to redeem them in verse 21. That's a loaded word. Theologically speaking, they're probably referring to it more politically. We thought he was the one who was going to get Rome off our backs. We're sick of living under this kind of rule. And we thought he was to be the one who gave us this freedom from our enemies. Much like, and maybe they would have gathered that from Exodus, <clears throat> really just the entire book of Exodus, but specifically Exodus 12 through 14, the, the Exodus from Egypt itself. Moses had led them, the people of God out, had given them freedom, liberated them from the oppression of Pharaoh and their enemies in Egypt. And they have this freedom, this redemption in mind. <clears throat> and others in Luke had had this in mind as well. Going back to Luke 168, Zechariah is praying very early on in this book. I'll just read. This is from the song of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. How is he going to accomplish that redemption that he's singing about there? Through Jesus. That's his expectation. And then you have Anna in the temple in Luke 2.38. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This concept of freedom from enemies in Jerusalem. So that's in Luke 2.38. In other words, God's people were looking for redemption. They were looking for freedom from their enemies. They thought this was the guy who was going to do it. But they had no category for the guy rescuing through being defeated, through suffering. But it turns out in verse 22 that the word about the empty tomb was circulating. The woman at the tomb had run back and told others that the tomb had been found empty. In verse 23, they did not find the body of Jesus. In verse 24, they did not see him. All this matches with verse 3. They went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. But they did find the stone rolled away. So they were finding certain things. They knew they were in the right spot, but they weren't finding the body. And here the word is circulating to these disciples, Cleopas, and perhaps this is his wife he's walking with, perhaps just a close friend. We don't know. But all we know is that Jesus was not where he was supposed to be in their minds. They wanted to take care of his body, and it's not there. 
To this point, up through verse 24, it's just been Cleopas talking, with the exception of Jesus' few short questions, like, what are you talking about? What kinds of things? Now Jesus speaks. Now Jesus takes center stage, so to speak, and all the attention turns to him. He responds to these disciples, Cleopas and this other disciple. And he said to them, O foolish ones. When was the last time you started a sentence off with that? To someone other than maybe a small child uh, who had just done something really badly. Typically, we don't consider this as a compliment. And it wasn't, but it probably wasn't a super harsh rebuke either. He's basically saying that these people were in a fog. How many of you, when you got up this morning, one of your first actions was to turn on a coffee maker? Amen. A good handful of us. For the rest of you, I don't know how you survive. But for those of us who, before the sun came up, turned on a coffee maker, you know what it's like to live in a fog. And that fog doesn't go away until the coffee's been in your system for a few minutes. That seems to be what Jesus is referring to here. There's a time, six, seven years ago, I drove from Alabama to Indianapolis for a meeting. It was like a 10-hour drive because of terrible traffic on I-65. Next morning, went to Starbucks because the people I had stayed with, I brought them some beautiful whole bean coffee from a little roastery in our town. And they looked at it when I gave it to them when I arrived at their house late that night. And they're like, oh, look at this. And I thought, oh, that's the comment of a person who does drink coffee. <laughs> and so the next morning, they weren't up yet. It was still dark. I had to get to my meeting. I was staying at their house for this meeting. And I just left for Starbucks to go get coffee. And I get to Starbucks, and I was so tired. I was so disoriented. And one of the ladies at the, you know, the barista basically said, so what do you have planned for your Monday? And I said, oh, is it Monday? Like, I was so disoriented. I had no idea that it was Monday, and it was not going to be a good Monday at this rate. That's what these people were living in, the fog. They were dull. Of their, their senses were numbed at this point. They had no idea what was going on. But wasn't the Lord being kind here to kind of lead them along and ask these questions and make these statements? He was being patient with them, even though they were What's the wording there in verse 25? They're slow of heart. Did you know that you are slow of heart and the Lord is patient with you? The Lord was slow of heart before your conversion and He kept wooing you. He kept drawing you by the work of the Spirit through the ministry of the Word of God. The Lord was kind to be patient toward us, again, before conversion and even after our conversion we're still slow to understand the Scriptures, even as Christians. And so because of this reality, we need to be careful to be patient with other people who perhaps are foolish ones, who perhaps are slow of heart from our point of view, from our vantage point. Maybe you're a little frustrated that a fellow member just doesn't seem to get it about X, Y, or Z, any one of them. Maybe you're concerned that someone you've shared the gospel with over and over and over again is just not getting it. And what I want to encourage you to do is to continue to be patient, like the Lord himself has been patient toward you. Praise the Lord that he has given you open eyes to see the word. And pray the Lord will open the eyes of others. And then, again, third, forbear, like wait, be patient, keep speaking the truth, keep praying for the response of these people that you're concerned about. And just be aware that you don't have everything figured out yourself either. So be patient with others who don't. What is Jesus talking about here in verse 
25, and particularly verse 27. So verse 25, it would be, believe all that the prophets have spoken. Who are those prophets? It would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of the twelve, people like Joshua, and, and Samuel, and so on. These would be the prophets there. And what Jesus is saying in verse 26 is that you should have gathered. That's what he means by was it not necessary. You should have gathered that something had to happen to the Messiah. That he had to suffer and enter into his glory. There were two ways, two ways, that these disciples should have known that the Messiah had to suffer. One was from specific passages. So you have passages like Isaiah 53. He's stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You have Genesis 3. The serpent will bruise his heel. It's a hint, but it it is a hint. This is Leviticus 16. You have a sacrificial lamb laying down his life. You have Numbers 21, the serpent on the pole. Like We could go on and on. You should have gotten the point from specific passages. You also should have gotten the point, the second way they should have known that the Messiah had to suffer in these ways was through themes in the Old Testament, particularly the theme of suffering. What happened to, let's say, Joseph? He was thrown into a pit before being raised up to be second in command in Egypt. What happened to, say, David? He had to go on the run for what appears to be weeks or months, to keep himself alive from his own son at one point, his son Absalom. He suffered before being glorified. We could go on and on. What I'm saying is the Old Testament pattern should have told Cleopas and the other disciples Jesus had to suffer. Like he's fitting the mold that the Old Testament gives us. He's fitting it perfectly. He himself is the mold, basically. So what he's doing here is that he's ministering to these disciples by helping them see that everything that's happened in these last couple days that they're concerned about, the being delivered over, the being crucified, and so forth, was all part of the fulfillment of Scripture. It was all according to plan. It was part of the script. This was in like the director's notes. This is what's supposed to happen. And then at the end, something really good happens. That's the way basically every movie goes, the way pretty much every good book goes. There's bad stuff, but at the end, good stuff. That's what's supposed to happen, is what Jesus is telling the disciples here. So how does Jesus minister to these disciples who are hopeless, who are in despair and despondency? He told them, it's according to plan. Secondly, in verses 25 through, I'm sorry, 28 through 35, Jesus gave Hope, again, by pointing to the word. But let's read the word here, verses uh, 28 through 35. Let's follow along, please. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, And gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus gave them hope. In verses 28 through 31, their eyes were opened. Do you notice that? Did you catch that? Verse 31 is the answer to the dilemma of verse 16. What was verse 16? Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What's happening in verse 31? Their eyes are opened to recognize him. You connect those dots there. Maybe if you are the right in your Bible type of person, circle verse 16 and draw a line down to verse 31 or something along those lines. Those are connected to each other. They couldn't see and now they can see. Why? Because God opened their eyes. In verses 32 through 35 then, now that their eyes are open, now Jesus has vanished from their sight. We have no idea how that happened. It's like he, by being raised again, he received a new mode. Like in a video game, you have this new mode where now you can travel into this secret room. Jesus has received a new mode, and now that he has been resurrected, and he can just vanish and be gone and be somewhere else. And so they get up, and I love verse 32. Oh, I'm sorry, verse, it is verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us. And I want to tell you, just in case there's any confusion, to have a burning heart here is a good thing. They were not concerned about this. This was not like, oh, that was terrible heartburn back there. This is the good kind of heartburn. This is what you want. You want to be aware of what's going on. And that's what's happening here. Their eyes have fully been opened. It has clicked in place here. I don't know if you know what that feels like to be confused about a matter, and then have it all click into place. But the time that came to my mind this week as I thought about this was probably fall of 2009, and I was taking Hebrew. And I was up at like 3 in the morning, which is what you do when you take Hebrew. And I was sitting there, and I don't know if you've ever seen Hebrew. I can show you my office what it looks like if you want, or you can Google it as well. Hebrew doesn't look like a language. It's just a bunch of lines on the page. And that's what it had looked like probably a month and a half into the semester here. And I was sitting in my pajamas on my apartment floor. Claire's been asleep for like six hours by this time. And I'm sitting there staring at Hebrew. And in a second, in a moment, it clicked. And it looked like words. And it started to flow. And I could read everything. And it, I was able to parse it. And all my homework, just like all the blanks, magically filled in at that moment. My eyes could see, and my heart was burning. And while I was sitting there at three in the morning, I was pumping my fist, going, yes, it works. Like, it finally looks like words. And it means something. It's not just squiggly lines. That's what it looks like to have your heart burn within you. And you've probably had some kind of experience like that yourself. And so they go, and they spread the word in verses 32 through 35. And while they're running... Did you feel that? Was your heart burning while we were hearing him talk about those Old Testament passages? When he opened to us the scriptures, when he was interpreting the word of God to us, which is a reminder that we need to interpret the word. We need people to help us interpret the word. So probably out of breath, they return to Jerusalem. They had gotten pretty far. Whether they got all the way to Emmaus or not, we don't know. And whether Jesus' conversation with them was for five minutes or two hours, we don't know. But they booked it back to Jerusalem because now they've got to tell people something really good has happened. And we want to make sure that they're aware of it. So they get back. Verse 33. They found the eleven. Maybe they knew they were going to be. Maybe they had to ask a few people. We don't know. But they find them. They were gathered together. 
And as soon as they open the door, they hear a message back to them. Right? Notice in verse 34, it's not them saying the Lord has risen. They're being told the Lord has risen. The eleven inside, those who were with them, gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They're having a party in that house. Now it's not just the woman. They're, they believe the woman. At least enough to run to the tomb, Peter and John. But now they're hearing it from Peter. He's appeared to Simon. That's Peter. Also known as Cephas in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. So basically what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, at the beginning of it, is he lays out, this was supposed to happen according to the Gospel, and this was supposed to happen according to the Scriptures. And then, to prove that these things really happened, he appeared. And he starts listing off who he appeared to. And one of them was Peter. So we don't know exactly where this happened. Maybe it was on a road. Maybe it was in a room. But Jesus had already appeared to Simon. That was corroborating evidence that Jesus really was alive, that there really should be reason for hope. And that's what's happening here in verses 28 through 35. Jesus is giving them hope. And so then they share what's happened on the road and how he became known to them. How the Lord opened their eyes. They had been closed. Now they're open. They saw it was really him all along. And they have hope. How does Jesus give you hope today? I thought of at least three ways that the Lord gives us as Christians hope today. One is through the Word of God. I know that sounds simple, but this is what we need to come back to again and again. It's so much easier for us to find our hope in our sugary treats and in our binging of Netflix or ESPN or whatever else. We need to find our hope in the Word of God. Whether it's when you're gathered together here or when you're riding in the car listening to an audio Bible or listening to a sermon, whether it's you sitting there with your Bible, maybe a notebook, maybe a journal, something along these lines, you need the Word of God. That's how God gives you hope. He also gives you hope through a believer. And that's where it's not wrong to run to another Christian who can help you think through what you're experiencing and talk to you and encourage you. We could even use the word counsel you from Romans 15. You need believers to speak the truth to you. Don't isolate yourself from these people, from the people in this room right now and the other members who aren't able to be here today. But also... Don't isolate yourself from other people who need you as the hope-giving believer. Maybe you're the one that someone will call and tell you, I am having the worst day of my life. Do you have a few minutes so I can talk to you about it? And you're the one who gives them hope. So you receive hope from the Lord through the Word, through another believer, and then third, through how He has worked in the past. The ministry of history. And you can go read the book of Habakkuk to see how that goes. Habakkuk is lost, despairing, confused, hopeless. All the words we've been using over and over again in this service today. And how does Habakkuk pull himself out of that funk? By thinking about creation, the flood, the conquest, and on and on and on. And he preaches the Word of God to himself and thinks, if God did that in the past, surely He's going to do that again in the future. And so surely I will hold on tight. Jesus gave hope in verses 28 through 35. Third, how else does Jesus minister to these aching, sore, troubled Christians? Jesus gave proof of his resurrection. That's verses 36 to 43. He gave proof of his resurrection. 
Verse 36 says, as they were talking about these things, again, what these people had experienced this day, the visions of Jesus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Verse 36 sounds a lot like verse 5, where the ladies are in the tomb And then the angels appear to them, and they fall to their faces in fear. Seems like that's what's happening here. Jesus basically walks through a wall. They think he's a ghost. He doesn't even, you know, knock on his way in. And they react just the way we would. If they were standing, they fell over. If they were sitting, they fell over. Um, Who knows if somebody actually passed out. But he shows he had a real body. He says, look, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Your eyes have been opened. You can see that this is, this is true. Ghosts don't have real bodies. That's what he's telling them. In verse uh, 39. Verse 38 reminded me a lot of John 14. Why are you troubled? Think about John 14.1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. That's John 14.1. Why are you troubled? That's what he asks them here. I told you this was going to happen. I'm really here with you to give you hope. I'm giving you proof that I am alive. And maybe you've, I'm sure you've heard the saying, seeing is believing. Like, if you want me to believe that such and such a, you know, multi-level marketing program works, show me how it works. I want to see it work out in your life. Seeing is believing. But Jesus says in the parallel passage in John 20, blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. And Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 1 as well. We have not seen Jesus, but we know he's real. We have not felt him, but we know he has touched us through the word of God. He has opened our blind eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit in what we call conversion when we repent and believe the gospel. And if you have never done that, we urge you today to repent of your sins, to call them what they are, rebellion against a holy God, and believe that he has made a way for you to have all your sins forgiven, washed away, buried in the bottom of the sea through Jesus Christ, through faith in him and all he has done. Jesus gave proof of his resurrection. I love verse 43. Because you just picture the eyes of, let's say, 15 or 20 people in this small, dark room watching a man eat a piece of fish with their mouths hanging open. This is surely not happening right now. But wait, all we see are the fish's bones. He's got to be actually eating it. He's got to be a real person if he's eating the fish. He's giving proof of his resurrection as a way of giving hope to hopeless people. Finally, verses 44 to 49, Jesus prepared them for future ministry. That's how Jesus ministered 
to aching sore disciples. He prepared them for future ministry. Follow along verses 44 to 49. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He takes their eyes off themselves, off the weeping of the last few days, the exhaustion, the confusion. And he puts their eyes onto their mission. You have been saved for a mission. And that mission, Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church, is to make disciples. We are not here only to feed the poor. We are not here only to plant trees. We're not here to bring shalom to the world. Those things can happen, but they happen by making disciples. That's what we're here for as a church. And that's what Jesus calls them to go and do. Go proclaim the repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Start here in Jerusalem and work your way out, which is what the gospel, uh, sorry, the book of Acts does. Starts in Jerusalem and works its way out. And we are continuing. We are still in Acts, in the book of Acts, so to speak. We're speaking the word of God with openness in an unhindered way as they were doing in the last verse of Acts 28. So Jesus takes their eyes off themselves and puts it on their mission. He talks about the promise of the Father. That's Joel 2. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit descending, which was fulfilled 50 days later at Pentecost. That's what the promise of the Father is referring to, the Holy Spirit coming. Jesus ascending to heaven, which will happen in our passage next week, and the Holy Spirit descending, taking up residence in the hearts of all those who believe. He tells them to stay in the city. This power will come on high. And we know again in Acts 2 that will happen. Tells them to stay in the city until you have the power you need to go and do the work of God. And Christian, that reminds us, we don't do this in our own strength. We make disciples by proclaiming the truth for the glory of God, but we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So rely on His power, on Him to give you courage to preach the Word, patience after you've preached the Word, hope that the Word will, that the seeds that you've planted will, will bear fruit in people's lives. Jesus prepared them for future ministry. This was the fourth way he ministered to these confused disciples, these doubting, weary disciples. Jesus tenderly ministered to his disciples all so that you would believe with certainty in all that he says and all that he does. That woman in Philadelphia named Joan got the help that she needed. Did that mean that her children came back? No. Did it mean her husband came back? No. Did you get to stay in the humongous, beautiful house? No, and no, and no to all those questions you would ask. She lived a miserable, probably still lives, based on when this book was written and so forth, a miserable life to some extent. But by saying she got the hope she needed, I don't mean somebody bailed her out and paid all the bills and brought her her beautiful American dream family back. 
It means the Lord gave her hope through the word of God that there is an eternity. There is another world that we listen to and we live for. And the echoes of eternity come ringing down to us as well to give you hope. Not that your problems are going to go away, but that the Lord will sustain you. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus wants to tenderly minister to you, and I pray that he has done that for you through this passage today. Let's close in prayer. Lord, bolster our faith, we pray, in resurrection power. Tell us day in and day out, while we're laying on our beds wondering what this world is coming to or what our family is coming to or what people think of us, minister to us in those weary, weepy moments with the faith that Jesus walked out of the tomb and will one day appear again to take us with him to glory, to establish his eternal kingdom where there will be no more weeping or confusion. We look forward to that day in Christ's name. Amen.